The American Experience with Ernesto Palomino. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The American Experience with Ernesto Palomino. Uh, we want to send a quick shout out and thanks to our partners and sponsors over there at Maximum Media Group. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Angel Mata. She is our Dallas attorney. Attorney. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the help. Um, we're going to dive right into it. Uh, so I'll let her open up. Uh, well, she'll open up the floor to introduce herself and just kind of give us a little intro about, about her, basically. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, my name, again, is uh, Angel Mata. I'm a local uh, criminal defense attorney here in the Dallas DFW area. Um, I've been doing this now. I can't believe the time has passed so long, but 11 years. Um, so I have my own law practice, um, mostly criminal, almost completely. Um, I do a little bit of entertainment law and very little family law. Um, before this, I was a prosecutor. Um, so I prosecuted in Dallas County and in McLennan County in good old Waco. Um, yep, so here I am, um, just chugging along. Wow. Well, thank you for making the time to speak with us. Uh, you know, when we think about what 2020 has been like for everyone, right? How has it kind of been for you guys, like from that from that COVID side? So for attorneys in general, was really difficult. Um, we were on the front lines along with medical personnel um, in terms of just dealing with the changes that were happening every day in every field across the legal field, obviously. Um, everything from criminal law, what we were dealing with was defendants now stuck in the jail, not able to get out. There was all these stories about, oh, they're letting people out because of COVID, didn't happen. Um, people were being delayed. Our clients who were in there on petty offenses were now being uh, put into quarantine with people that had COVID. It was rampant and still is at the Dallas County Jail. And so that made it really, really difficult. So a lot of defendants' rights were being uh, violated. Um, in addition to that, when you start thinking about um, you know, employment law, um, the attorneys were having to deal with that. You know, can an employer force somebody to go back to work? Um, what if they're sick? What if they have ailments? In terms of family law, it happened, the shutdown in Dallas happened like right at spring break. So then you had all of these parents that were trying to keep the kids for longer than a week. So it happened that week of spring break and they're supposed to give the kid back the Sunday before school started. Well, school never started. So then you had these parents who are like, nope, school didn't start, so they're staying with me. And so it was every, every field um, of law was affected and we had to roll with the punches. Every day there was something new that was happening um, that we had to deal with. And so um, to see the, the, the bar, the, the, you know, the American Bar Association, Texas Bar step up um, was pretty amazing because I think they all did a really great job because these were things that we would have never fathomed in a million years that we would be having to deal with. And, and we did it, each and every one of us. No, and it, and it kind of, uh, it translated across everyone's, uh, mm -hmm. whether you were deemed essential or non-essential, like even stay-at-home moms, they yep. had to become like home teachers and IT techs. Yep. <laughs> and we all still perform their, their mom duties, you know, so definitely shout out to everyone that was essential and non-essential for navigating through these times. Um, even personally for your own law firm, like how were you able to adjust like on the fly? 
Um, so for us, the good thing is I don't have a lot of clients in jail. So that was the, the biggest problem that most of the criminal defense attorneys were dealing with was their jail clients not being able to get out um, and being stuck in there in really bad conditions. And so luckily for me, I only had about two or three. Um, and I was able to get most of them out pretty quickly. Um, but we had to deal with it because, you know, just everything just came to a standstill. The question was, you know, do we go into the office? Do we not go into the office? I had employees I had to, to worry about. Uh, my assistant has a son um, that was not going to school now. Um, so what's he going to do? Is he going to come into the office with us? Um, so I had to deal with that. Um, so there was just a lot of changes. And then I was in court prior to the shutdown five days a week, Monday through Friday, I'm in court, I'm in court, I'm in court, and suddenly, no court. So that was, for me, put a, a hold on all of my clients, but at the same time, was just something that I wasn't used to, because I wasn't used to having to sit in an office all day. That's why I became a criminal lawyer, so I could like get out and go to court. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then on the flip side of that, what did it allow you to kind of, did it allow you to kind of be more strategic or did, did, did life being on a pause have a positive effect on the other side where you were just go, 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 where now it's like, you don't have that. So were you able to just be like, well, this is nice to at least have this. And Not really. I mean, cases were put on hold, but then more cases are still coming in. So let's say you have a, a caseload of normally 60 clients and every week, you know, you're getting new clients, you're disposing of some clients and it's just this revolving door. Um, but then when none of the clients cases are being resolved, your cases just start stacking up and stacking up. And so I think we reached at some point nearly 100 cases when I should only have about 50 or 60 people. And then my clients, unfortunately, some of them might be guilty and they go out and they commit crimes. So then I'm having to deal with now wrangling in 100 people to ensure that they're being compliant on their bond. So it's a lot of people for me to have to keep track of. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of positive, I think, um, because we were still, I, I was still working. We still had, there was still work to be done. I guess maybe it gave me a little bit extra time to like review evidence and files, but then when you have just more clients coming in the door, um, I don't know, I mean, it just, it, I'm not going to say it equaled out or balanced in any way. Let's flip the, uh, the clock back to pre-COVID. Um, I've always been interested in the dynamics <laughs> of life. Because, you know, I'm a law and order guy. I, <laughs> and part of that stuff, it's like, dude, how much of that is, is real, right? So let's, fast, let's, let's backtrack, right? So you, you going in court and trials and all that. Uh. Like, help me debunk some of that stuff that we see on television. Like, it's all fake. <laughs> <laughs> so there's nothing that... No, there's no. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so take us into, like, what the energy is like when you go to trial, right? Even if it's, if it's not something that you're like, yeah, this is exactly what happens in television, yeah. right? So most of the tele... I actually... So prior to being an attorney, I was like a crime junkie. I read true crime stories. I read the news. I watched all day long, CSIs and every lawyer show out there. Like that was my thing. But then once I became an attorney, it all stopped. Because then when I start watching those shows, I'm like thinking in my head, objection, objection, you can't do that. <laughs> and so it's a lot of it is just, you know, it's, it, it's there to, to publicize and to get viewers and they exaggerate. Some of it is, you know, I guess, comparable and you know similar um but 
Most of it's not. Most of it's not. Like, for example, my clients, every time they get arrested, they'll come to me and they'll be like, they're going to throw the whole case out. I'm like, well, why? Well, they didn't meet, read me my Miranda rights. I didn't, they didn't read them to me. And I'm like, they don't have to. And he's like, but I was arrested. I was like, yeah, you were arrested. I said, did they question you? Like, let's say it's a DWI. Um, I said, did they question you about, like, anything about your guilt after you were in handcuffs in the back of the squad car? Well, no, they just asked me my name, and that's about it. I said, so they didn't question you when you were, like, already under arrest? Well, no. I said, well, then they don't have to read you, Miranda. People think that once you get arrested, then you have to read your rights. Like, you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney. It's just not true. But on TV, that happens every single time somebody's arrested. But unless you are in custody and they're interrogating you, you're under arrest, they don't have to read you your Miranda rights. So your case ain't getting thrown out because they did not violate your rights. And so that's just one thing that my clients come in here and they're really dead set on. And I'm just like, mm, sorry, that's fake. That's not what happens in real life. Mm -hmm. And you arguing in, I don't just say argue, but you, you're in court, right? Mm -hmm. You're doing your thing, you're, whether you're defending someone, right? And, and what is it about that? That you, you know, because I could tell from your energy, right? You're, it sounds like you're very passionate in the courtroom. Yes. <laughs> right? Um, and tell us, like, even then, like, when you're, even if your client is guilty, right? How do you kind of... <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, then this is, you're right, you're right. This is guilty until proven innocent, right? So how do you, how do you kind of, like, in your mind mentally, like, Okay, I have to like strategize a way to make this person seem or to convince. Uh, okay, yes. Yeah, so, okay. Um, so first of all, I love trial. So I was a prosecutor first. So if you're a if you want to get into trial, you become a prosecutor first. Like you're gonna go to trial. So I think my first year as a prosecutor in Waco, I tried, I think, nearly 30 cases, which is a lot. So as a defense attorney, on the flip side, well, minus COVID, I mean, in a year, I'm only having like two or three trials. Like, that's it. Like, that's it. Um, and so I like being in trial. Um, it, I really enjoy it. The, the show or I guess the movie that's most uh, realistic is that one, that, uh, that OJ, the OJ movie or whatever. Oh, the, the, is it that, American People versus OJ Simpson? Yes, the one that came out on Netflix or uh, something. Yeah. Okay, okay, so that one is like the most realistic. So when I watched that, I didn't have to like scream at the TV or anything, but I was like, ooh, I do that too. <laughs> and so I was super excited to see that somebody else uses some of my strategies, even though I was like, I thought I made that up. <laughs> So, okay, just from from a, a perspective, mm -hmm. you somebody that watched that series. Yes. You think he did it? I have no idea. I have no idea. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, but at the end of the day, whether somebody is guilty or not guilty, it's up to the state to prove it. The state needs to prove it. That's how you hold them in check. That's just the way the life works. So in that case, you don't think they did a good enough job of proving that he was. I think that they, he had a really, really good defense team. I think he had a really good defense team. Like, for example, if you watch the, the show, you know, they had the jurors that, like, went into uh, the house and checked it out. And it looked like and the defense team had gone in there prior to the jury arriving and staged it, like, made it look different than what it normally looked. But nobody, I mean... That was great. Mm -hmm. That's what you do. I'm going to give you an example of a case that I had. Like, you you have to, it's, it's not entertainment. It's, um, 
I mean, when you go into trial, it's a show. It's a show. Um, and so, for example, I had this one case. It was it had started off as an aggravated assault, deadly weapon. And my client, she was a little rough around the edges, and she had some attitude. <laughs> attitude. And, you know, she had the nails two inches long, bedazzled, and the eyeliner out to her ears. But I'm going to tell you, when we went to trial, I was like, young lady? I said, we're going to go to trial tomorrow. And, you know, she's obviously, she's being accused of a very serious offense. I said, I want to see what you're going to wear. Send me a picture of what you're going to wear. I said, I want you to cut down the nails. I want them to be pink or pearlescent. I want your hair in a bun. And I don't want any eye makeup. Zero eye makeup. And I want your heels to not be any more than a half inch. A half inch. That's it. I said, it's summertime. I need to see flowers and maybe some white jeans. I said, I want you to go in there and look sweet and innocent. Because normally, the girl wore like six inch heels every day and looked crazy. Um, but we got in there and she is so cute and she's like this little cute petite young lady and so like during closing arguments I look over to her and I'm like stand up for me so the jury can see just how big you are and you know she's all tiny (laughs) and I'm wearing my tallest heels so I'd stand up and she's next to me like at my shoulders and so you know I could have just let her walk in there looking all like how she does on a normal basis with her nails and her blinged out and little braids in her hair. But I said, no, I said, you're going to clean it up because it's a show for the jury. And so the jury, when they look at her and they look at the man that she was supposed to have assaulted, they're like, nah, because a man was like this huge, like 400 pound man that was really ugly and kind of scary looking. And then they looked at her and her little flowered shirt and pink nails. <laughs> and so it was a show. And so I think that when, she, when we walked in there and they looked at her, they, they for, people judge a book by its cover. So it's important. Um, so, so part of being in trial is that half of it is show. Half of it is show. So I'll tell my, um, my clients, especially like the, the scary guy clients, I'll be like, okay, I said, when I'm asking these questions, I'm going to pause and I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder because I don't really want to touch them, right? Sometimes you don't want to touch your clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, I'm going to put my hand on the shoulder like we're really struggling through this, right? And I want you to look down and sad. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you I will because I want to warn them ahead of time because they're not used to me like touching somebody uh, or touching them and so I want them to be prepared I said so when I look over to you and I I put my hand on your shoulder that is a time when we're gonna you're gonna look solemn and look down I said okay you got it all right let's do this (laughs) so they already already established some sort of a comfort yes you know, relationship with you in that sense where it's like, okay, like they feel like you have their best interest. Well, of course, otherwise they wouldn't have hired me. Um, But, you know, before, I think a lot of attorneys do a disservice to their clients by not preparing them prior to getting into trial. What are they going to wear? How are they going to act and behave themselves? And how are you going to interact with them, right? Because you have clients, I mean, some of these people have never been in a professional setting. They really haven't. They don't know how to dress. When you tell your client to dress up for trial, they come in wearing the strange, what we consider the very strangest things, where in their lifestyle, they're looking pretty fly, yeah. right? They look like the 
go into the club. The ladies will walk in with these little bitty mini skirts, these six inch heels. It's because when you tell them to dress up, that's what they're thinking, right? That's what they're thinking. And so you have to coach them and teach them and show them what to wear and how to behave because they just don't know how they've never been taught that. And so that's a part of the trial is having control over your client and ensuring that they, the jury sees them in a good light because we're all human. We judge people every day as they walk past us. And it's unfortunate that we do. You know, if I had tattoos all up my arms and piercings in my nose, they're going to think a certain way about me right? Um, and so the people that are on the juries, the jurors, they oftentimes look different than our clients and they come from different walks of life than our clients. And so we need to kind of make sure that they aren't being prejudged based on something else that it has nothing to do with the case, nothing to do with the case. So I think a lot of attorneys do a disservice when they don't clean it up, what we think clean it up, because my idea of what is nice or cleaned up is not the same as theirs, right? Um, and at the same time, also just being in trial, it is a very, very stressful situation. There's things that are coming at you left and right. You have to, you know, you have to deal with all sorts of things that are coming to light. Sometimes you're getting new evidence that you was not given to you prior to trial, should have been, but you're getting new evidence in the middle of trial. Um, you're getting witnesses that maybe aren't showing up. You're getting prosecutors that are doing things that are way out of line. You have a judge that might be biased um, against you and in favor of the state, and you have to deal with that because that will make you, you and your client look guilty when you have a judge that's clearly in favor of the state um, and playing sides. And so me as an attorney, I have to deal with all of these other things that are going on at the same time while trying to focus on my, the questioning, um, dealing with the witnesses. Um, you never know how a witness, especially not one of your witnesses, is going to act on the stand. I, when I was a prosecutor, this poor lady, she um, was so nervous. She threw up on herself on the stand, on oh. the stand. On the stand. And so I'm like, pause, pause. Um, and then the judge was like, I was like, judge, can we break? He's like, how long do you need? Oh, <laughs> you, you already know. You already know. Yes. Yes. So then when the jury sees that, I'm just like, have a little sympathy. The lady is scared. She was so scared. She threw up on herself. She was like an old lady too. Uh, oh, elderly lady. I'm sorry. Um, and so... I mean, who would have ever, like, here I like, what do I do? Um, so, and you have clients, like when I was in um, family violence, you have victims that just, it's so difficult for them to recall what happened and getting beaten. Um, and you have victims that are angry with you because they don't want to testify against their man. Um, they'll cuss at you. <laughs> I mean, they, they're, they're uncooperative, even though you know you're looking for their best interests because they're being beaten. Um, so you have to, you have to roll with punches. It is very, very, very stressful. And then you have somebody's whole life in your hands. I mean, when you have a client that's facing life in prison, literally their whole life is in your hands. I mean, obviously there's the evidence. You can't create the evidence, but a, a lot of 
what might happen depends on me. And so that puts enormous stress. Um, and then their family members being there and everybody's judging you and do you ask the right questions? And why didn't she bring that up? And why didn't she do this? Um, you know, I have my strategy. I have my strategy and, and I, I roll with it and every case is different. I uh, portray things to the jury in a different way depending on how I think they might view the case or who they are. So anyway, so, so trial is, has a lot that goes into it. I really enjoy it because I like being in court. Um, otherwise, I'm just sitting behind a desk and it's boring. <laughs> but yeah, so, so what you see on, uh, in TV is very different. Um, yeah. Wow. That's definitely, <laughs> that definitely not like a SVU case. No. So, you know, in, I think we even talked about it before where, do you remember when, obviously we had the, was it Amber Heyer case that was mm -hmm. going on yes. and you predicted basically what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, her being from Dallas police officer and then, you know, committing the crime that she did. And then she, she you know, they had the whole thing in court and she hugs her, the guy's brother and, you know, the judge gets flagged for it. And I'm like, what's going to happen? Like, yeah. And then you say, well, this is what's going to happen. She's going to appeal and then they're going to let, I'm like, and then it goes, I was just like, and then it happened. Like as soon as she got put away, is she a file for an appeal? Yep. And okay, so when you see those cases, right? And I don't, I don't, I don't think you were involved in mm -hmm. any of that. But yeah. when you see them from afar, right? And what do you kind of see? I think even in the court systems here, mm -hmm. that you're kind of like, this isn't right. This is only she's only getting a benefit with whether it's because she's an officer, mm -hmm. whether she's a woman, whether she's white. I mean, wh what do you think the 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 variables that play into how? she got prosecuted compared to anybody else has she been latina has she been yeah. uh, has she been african-american well in, in a lot of cases there's a lot of things that aren't right i mean i'm just gonna be honest with you um so she's not the only one there's a lot of different variables and factors just depending on the person i'll tell you this i never ever ever like when the media is involved in any of my clients cases because then your client is not just judged um based on the facts of the case. They're judged by public opinion, and I think that weighs heavily on what, uh, how the judge reacts, how the prosecutors prosecute the case, how the jurors see it, and then maybe the outcome ultimately. Um, and so as an attorney, whenever I have a client that has made the news, oh, I'm not gonna go leak that information and let them know, let the news know that we're going back to court. Heck no, I'm gonna try to do that, and, you know, just on the slide, like let's go to court and get the heck out of here, right? But there's a lot of attorneys, I think that they, for their own self-promotion, they will let the news know like when they're gonna walk into the building and this and that. And then now the public gets involved. Um, I think there was a lot of different things that went on to, uh, to her case. It was Amber Geiger, right? Um, there was a lot of different things that went on with her case that I think were wrong from the get-go, you know, from the, uh, what is it, Officer Mata, Mata, mm -hmm. I'm not related. You know, he goes out to the scene and they, they do treat her different. They do treat her different. I mean, if I as the attorney were to walk up to a scene, the defense attorney, 
and start talking. They can let me talk to my client. They can open the door and let her come out. No, it doesn't work that way. And he's not even the attorney. He's just trying like the liaison for the attorney. Uh, like if I sent my assistant to go over there and talk to her, no, that ain't gonna happen. So I do think that they treated her differently. Absolutely. But I mean, ultimately, I think that um, the police agencies, whoever was involved, I think maybe the Texas Rangers or the FBI, I mean, they ended up doing a fairly decent job in the investigation, which unfortunately for everybody else in Dallas County doesn't always happen. You know, they don't go above and beyond um, to get evidence and investigate. And I think that um, they did for her when they put a lot of resources into all of gathering all of this evidence, doing all this investigation. You know, there's people every day in Dallas County getting arrested on little to no evidence, um, just hearsay and word of mouth. And resources should, should go to that. And so I think there's a lot of problems. I, I don't like to see when um, resources are spent on one person because just because she's a cop, you don't, you didn't treat my other clients as nicely as you did her. You know what I mean? So that, to me, that's what bothered me. I mean, I think the way that it played out in court, um, I mean, it is what it is. I think that the attorneys all did a fantastic job, especially the state. Um, he did a darn good job. Um, I think Toby's, uh, closing arguments was really fantastic. Um, you know what, and she wanted to hug that young man's brother, then let her. I mean, at the end of the day, they're the victims here. They're the victims here. I think the biggest thing in terms of the judge, I think she did get in trouble. Somebody filed a judicial complaint against her, but I think it was because they didn't talk about this too much, but she gave a Bible to her. She did, that's right. So, you know, there's a whole separation of church and state. Um, had the jury already left? Was the case already over? That, to me, was a little out of the ordinary, but I'm going to tell you, so the judge in that um, case, she used to be my supervisor when I was a prosecutor. Um, she's a good judge. She is a darn good judge. She had some memes going on about her because of her facial expressions and everything, but you know what? I'm going to tell you, she's a good judge. Yeah. She is. I think that she made some, some good rulings. Um, I think that all the... Uh, attorneys did a you know pretty great job and they were in like one that didn't but um i don't want to say anything bad uh, <laughs> i gotta work with these people <laughs> no but i do think that everybody did it you know they did a good job i just hate to see that the, what bothers me is when you see that so much favoritism for her when there's other people squandering in the jail right now with you know they didn't, did they go get the video on his case? <laughs> I mean, no. You know? Yeah, and, and I think even like, even in my, as far as one of the cases that got like the most national attention mm -hmm. was one of those. And then I think like, that, that was in 2019. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think so, right? And then it kind of snowballed into like, uh, and I think that's when I think, I, I don't want to say that that's what triggered Black Lives Matter or, or into those movements, but I think once we hit 2020, right? And then, obviously everything that politically was going on and then all of a sudden it's like stop yeah and then the you know the um the gentleman that was um that was a uh, what was his name i forget his george name. floyd george floyd i'm sorry george floyd <laughs> sorry about that okay. um and then once that happened it was like whoa like all of a sudden it's like america woke up and, 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 and even then, like, 
with a conversation that was happening, right? Like, oh, well, blatantly, we saw the video. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's gut-wrenching. Like, I, I watched it. I never wanted to watch it again. But it, it was a, an assault on your conscience, right? Where had we had actual video of this young lady doing this, it, you know, would it have triggered the same? Who knows? But, but I think even then, as that kind of simmered into the forefront of America's conscience, I think that was one of the trials that, okay, every, she got, you know, she, I think if she had been let go without any charges, that George Floyd thing would have kind of kicked that off too, because there's no way that you can, you know, you can do that and not have the court of public opinion be like, this is totally not fair, you know? And the guy was apparently just eating ice cream in his, in his house compared to Mr. Floyd, who was just like, even then, like the amount of force that was used was just like, I've talked to um, wives of police officers who, who served or who are currently serving, and they're like, yeah, even they agreed, like, that's not something that they do. And even then, like, the guy wasn't going anywhere. He basically wasn't avoiding you. He was just like, get him off the ground, put him in the car, end of story. Yeah. Well, I think uh-huh. that this has been ongoing for a while. So when you mm-hmm. say that America's not been woke, there are some woke people. I mean, there's, it's, been, it's been going on. Right. It's been go- The problem is that Americans don't care unless it affects them. Is it? It doesn't that People don't care. People don't care unless it's directly affecting them. And then they want to see it on video. And then once it's on video, then they, you know, they were trying to put, you know, uh, say all these things about George Floyd. And uh, I know there was like a photo that was uh, circulating with this girl that they said that she, he had broken her house or assaulted. It turns out it wasn't even her. So you still have people that it did not assault their conscience uh, because they. I don't know. I don't know why. Um, But I think that this has been an ongoing problem and it will continue to be an ongoing problem. And I think that there do need to be changes. 100%. There needs to be changes in how police respond to certain situations. I mean, just Amber Geiger, like, why'd you, like, you thought it was your place and somebody broke in. Why'd you go in there without like calling for backup? Like who does that? Like who does that? Like you just go in guns a blazing? Mm-hmm. What? I mean, I'm sorry, if somebody broke broke into my house, like I'm gonna back it up a few steps. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm gonna draw my gun, because I did have a situation once where I did have to draw my gun because somebody was in my house, but or trying to break into my house, but I didn't shoot him through the door. You know what I mean? I, I backed it up, had the gun in one hand. And called the police on the other. I mean, she just went in guns like because I think that, I don't know if it's the training they have or it's the lack of training they have. Um, I think just, and I'm going to tell you, I love the police. I have a lot of friends that are police officers. Absolutely support them 100%. Um, but the, the issue is, I think, across the board, just in general, is that um, they lack the training. They lack the training. They lack the training. You have to go through, what, six months of the police academy, and then they give you a gun and you're out in the streets, and yeah, you may get, you know, um, you're on, what is it, um, you have an FTO, like the field training officer that follows you around for a few months, but I'm sorry, I mean, you have the ability to kill somebody, you have this gun on your hip, you need more training. I think that they need to have military experience, they need to have a college degree, 
or an associate's degree or something, and they just need more training. Because I don't think that there's a police officer out there that, that puts on his badge and set in his uniform and says, I'm going to kill somebody today. They don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. Um, they want to do a good job. I just think that they overreact and then they have internal biases where they think people of a certain color are more dangerous than other people and they are more inclined to shoot them just because they just have never encountered, I'm gonna say they've never encountered black people before, never dealt with black people before. They need to get out into these communities and get some black friends, I don't know. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do, like I said, one with training, Two, I think that there's all this defund the police. No, y'all need to pay them more. You need to pay the police because what happens is that you don't have a, um, nobody wants to be a police officer. You're gonna put on a badge and risk your life every day for $40,000. It's not a competitive field, right? So for example, I'm gonna tell you DPD in Dallas, like they are so underfunded. They don't have any police officers, like they are lacking by police officers by a ton. Let's say for example, they're supposed to have 2,000 officers on the streets and that's to secure the city of Dallas, 2,000 officers. But let's say they only have 1,500. What does that do for those 1,500 officers? That puts a lot more pressure on them. They are now having to do things that they normally wouldn't do, right? And so I think that they need more police officers. If they need, if, if the city needs more police officers, get them, right? And you need to be competitive because the problem is, especially like in Dallas, what you're seeing is that they're not paying enough. And so we have these Dallas police officers that go through the training um, and then they just leave. They go to Irving, they go to South Lake, they go to these other cities where it's much calmer. Um, a better environment and you're getting paid more. So then what does that leave DPD? We get the bottom of the barrel. Like we get the bottom of the barrel. There's some good DPD officers, I'm not gonna lie. But if you paid more and you're more competitive, then you could fire the crappy officers. But now like they have to like think twice. Ooh, do we, we wanna fire all these crappy police officers? Cause we don't have anybody here to replace them. Yeah. Who are we gonna get? Like they're not bringing in quality candidates like Irving PD is stealing DPD officers why aren't we taking their officers is there is there even a, a psych evaluation when it comes to like performing the the actual like going through the police academy because I think even then like that's that's super important I would think that I don't I think I want to say they do and it may just be per agency not like just like a requirement across the board i don't think i don't think i'm not you can't quote me on that but um i mean obviously i think that they do need a psychological evaluation because the type of job that they have 100 percent whether it's happening or not i don't know um but i do think that they're like i said more training pay them more get some quality candidates and make the requirements to be a police officer a lot more strict so right now, if you can pass the academy, guys, y'all got a job. Yeah, <laughs> Pretty much. It's not like you passed. All right, come on in. There's no, like, as an attorney, like when I'm trying to bring on other attorneys, I can like, there's a 50 attorneys I can choose from. I'm going to get the quality candidate. But it's not, it's not like that in a lot of these agencies. They just got to get whoever knock, whoever fills out that application because they don't have a choice. And that's my opinion. Um, I've never worked in, you know, HR at the police mm -hmm. department, but from what I can tell, I think that's a, a huge problem. Yeah.
and, and then now the police chief is out. Like she's she's gone. Yes, but you know, I'm gonna tell you about Dallas. We like to push people out and judge them before they even get here. And they were giving her a hard time before she even got here. Well, um, so I, I don't really know whether or not it was. It, they they yeah. were they were really hammering her on the protesting that was happening. But you kind of got that in every city. You knew that that uh, even after. A Brianna Taylor, mm-hmm. like that thing just, and then I, I watched the special that they did on that and they, um, ABC did a great job about having uh, some of those officers that were on, involved, and, but Jesus, like they just, like a no-knock warrant, and and I get it, they targeted that address because of an ex-boyfriend of hers, yeah. that they saw her him coming out with a FedEx package, and but there's there was no reason why that young lady should have lost her life. I'm going to tell you, no-knock warrant's a whole other story, because you know they're in there. They're going to come out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get them when they walk out the yeah. door. I mean, you don't have to go guns a-blazing and kick that door down. Yeah. Get it right, too. It, it was, that help. Yeah, that was super sad for, yeah. And, and then the boyfriend was being painted as this guy, like, well, we mm-hmm. shot a police officer, so therefore we returned fire. Well, yeah, but, like, dude, like, oh, we announced that we, we were at the door. And I was like, well, they didn't hear you? It, yeah, I just think that a lot, and, and not not to mention, when they were doing an investigation on the officers, they found out they all had multiple complaints, especially mm-hmm. the one guy had a lot of complaints. So why is it that at, it, it takes that to then it's like, oh, yeah, we should have flagged this guy. No, like you should have done that a long That's time ago. That's the problem also, I think, with some of the unions with the police department, because I'm sorry that... If I, as an attorney, let's say I work for the DA's office, and if I withheld evidence, or if I lied, misrepresented, if I hurt somebody when I wasn't supposed to, I'd be fired. I'd be fired. But what happens in these police departments is they get complaint after complaint after complaint, and there's this whole go through the process, go through the process before they decide whether or not they're going to fire you. And so you have all these police officers with multiple complaints, multiple complaints, criminal charges. I mean, all sorts of things. And I'm going to tell you, there's still police officers. And if they got fired, they're probably going to another agency where they may be like that. Um, and so I just I think that they need to be held to a higher standard. Right. As a, if you are a police officer... And you lie, and you get caught lying, like it's an obvious lie, you need to get fired. You need to get fired. There's no coming back from that. Because I'm sorry that if if I'm I'm an attorney, and I lied to somebody, and I got caught, I'm going to be fired. And that's going to be any job. So why do the police, why do they allow them to do that? It boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I also encourage people, like when I have clients that come in and they feel like they were wronged by the police, I encourage them to make an investigative report. Make a report because if nobody says anything, nobody, their superiors are not going to know. Nobody's going to know how to address it. So make a complaint. Um, whether it goes anywhere or not, questionable, probably not, but maybe one day they get enough complaints and they realize what's going on with this police officer, something will be done. So within within that that same thought any well because it, it's it's an experience that i've gone through mm-hmm. you know where i've been stopped by a police officer and yet it's almost like a freezing experience mm-hmm. because you're almost like just don't do anything that's going to trigger them to number one see you as a threat mm-hmm. because 
you know, unless you're, if you're driving a certain car or if you're driving through a certain neighborhood, you have to maintain not under the speed limit. But let's say, like exactly what happened to me, I got pulled over, um, ran a stop sign, shouldn't have, but I did. Okay, I was tired, I was sleepy, I was ready to go home. But fortunately, the officer stopped me inside my community. Mm-hmm. I didn't hesitate. I rolled down all my windows. I kept my hands where he could see them. And obviously, he comes over the left shoulder. And, and the first thing I see, he's a white officer. Mm-hmm. And I automatically just freeze. And I'm just like, Jesus, just let me get home. So... It, it wasn't anything beyond a two-minute interaction. He comes over, asks me for, you know, my license registration, comes back and says, oh, well, you live right here. I said, yeah, and he goes into... And I was actually, you know, kept my, my tone very friendly. How you doing tonight? And, and he was like, oh, well, you know, I just stopped you because you ran over the stop sign. And obviously saw my face and I wasn't inebriated. I wasn't anything but cordial to this guy mm-hmm. and like i said within a two minute time limit he's like okay have a good night just don't run any more stop signs yeah and that was it but i was like fro- froze with fear because i was like jesus yeah like don't let this guy just be a straight ass and be like yo get out the car yeah. because that's also happened to me where it's like get out the car i'll ask you questions in front of my vehicle and there i am for display as mm-hmm. cars are passing by but anyway, so the interactions have kind of been, you know, the luck of the draw. But luckily, for the most part, I've always had good interactions with officers. Yeah. But because of my home training, where my father and my mother are like, you don't ever, ever mouth off. You hold your tone. You ask, you're doing what they ask you to do. He wants you to get out the car, get out of the car. You know? He wants you to go stand by his vehicle, stand by his vehicle. Don't be like, well, why are you stopping? And I think that sometimes when we see these videos, that's what happens. It's like they're already coming in into an... Because I think that they come out of this car thinking like, I got to make it home. So first thing is like, they're already like on edge, mm-hmm. I would think. And then you meet, you're met with resistance off the bat. Then that automatically kind of causes a... a just an intense situation that it doesn't need to be. I'm going to agree and then mostly disagree with you. <laughs> no, that, that's great. <laughs> no, because you, you know more than that. But I'm just coming from like someone that it kind of experienced that. So yeah. That, oh, and everybody's encounter is different. Um, and I always, I have a friend um, that her and I used to go to schools. Uh, we haven't done it in a while. Um, but for maybe like two, three years, we'd go to schools and talk to kids um, we even talked to um, college students. One of the young men one time had gone to Harvard and just talked to them about police interactions. Police interactions. If you're stopped, police interactions. Um, and so we talked to them about that and how to be safe and how to get home safe and how to talk to them and everything. The problem is, and this is, here's where the difference comes between you and maybe somebody else, is imagine if you got pulled over because you hadn't run that stop sign. Like, you just got pulled over just because they wanted to pull you over because you are the wrong skin color in your own darn neighborhood or somebody else's neighborhood. That is where the problem is. So you're all nice and cordial, but if you keep this keeps happening to you every week, week in, week out, three, four times, you know, a year, you get sick and darn tired of it. So then 
on that fourth or fifth time when you get pulled over for absolutely no darn good reason and they ask you to step out, yeah, you're probably going to have some attitude. Mm -hmm. You're going to have some attitude because you've been mistreated. You've been mistreated. And that's a problem in the criminal justice system in general. We mistreat people in the criminal justice system. When my clients are about to go on probation, I tell them, I said, by the way, your probation officer's probably going to be a jerk. I use other words. Um, they're not going to be very nice to you. They're going to belittle you. So just put up with it. It's an hour of your life. And it's unfortunate. Their probation officers treat them like crap. When you go into the jail, they treat you like the scum of the earth. When you go into a prison, you are mistreated. These are still human beings that are still coming out. Stop mistreating people and maybe they won't treat you bad. Right? Um, because most of the time, not most, a lot of the time, there's, there's a lot of really bad situations or things that have happened to certain people within a community that have created this, that has caused this, right? And maybe sometimes it didn't happen to them, but it happened to their brother, their sister, their mom. And so then they go into this stop thinking the worst outcome because it just happened to Big Brother last week. Well, he got stopped for no reason and they tackled him and they tased him and yada yada. That is the type of, that, that is what is happening in the cause when the police officers mistreat people. So even then, like, what, what kind of advice can you just say, like overall be like, okay, if this happens to you, remain calm. Or, <laughs> I, yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's a lot to ask, but you know, when yeah. you're in the moment, but. Rule no. of thumb, rule so of thumb. So I always say, be compliant. Be compliant. It is five, for you, two minutes, two to five minutes of your life. Be compliant. Yes, officer. No, officer. So one, be compliant. You always have to identify yourself and give them your identifying information. You got to do it. Don't lie. You have to do it. It's a law. If they want you to step out of the vehicle, step out of the vehicle, right? Beyond that, you ain't got to do nothing. Hey, can I search your vehicle? You know what, officer? I'm going to respectfully decline. Hey, can I get into your pockets? Officer, I'm going to respectfully decline. Hey, where, have you, where are you going? What have you been smoking? Officer, I'm not going to answer that question. How much did you drink tonight? Officer, I'm respectfully not going to answer that question. I want you to submit to the DWI test. Officer, I'm going to decline to do that. And you do so respectfully. And if that officer is the one that does something inappropriate, they have videos. When that officer is the one that does something inappropriate, who's going to look like the victim here? Yeah, the person on the side of the road that is respectful is going to be the victim. And that officer is going to be the bad guy. But what happens is if your temperatures raise and you start getting heated with that police officer and you have a heated police or a heated individual, and a racist cop or just a jerk of a cop, they're gonna side with the jerk of a cop, right? They're gonna side with him. But if you're polite, Please. you are gonna be, the, the individual is gonna be the victim here. And if they did something wrong, this is not the time to argue your way out of it. You're, let's say you have a racist cop. Do you think you're gonna change his mind on the side of the road? Nah, it's not gonna happen. No. What you do, is when you leave, you've got, a, you've got a warning ticket or something, right? You have his information. Contact me, do it yourself. You go to that police department and you write a statement. You write a statement and say, 
on December 5th, 2020, I got stopped by officer such and such, and he called me the N-word, and he told me I need to go back to Mexico, or whatever it was, you write a statement, and you get that internal affairs investigation started against that police officer. Because I'm going to tell you, you're not going to argue your way out of it on the side of the road. And you, as the individual, are going to be the one that looks bad at the end of the day. I know it sucks. I know that there's people that are getting pulled over left and right for no good reason at all. But make a report about it. Every time you get pulled over and you didn't do anything wrong, make a report. Some, there's going to be some change. If everybody did that, every time some, they were wronged, something might happen. Right. And, and even things like those those uh, actions, I don't think that we're, we're taught or given the information mm-hmm. that these are options that are available to us, whether you're an immigrant or whether you're a U.S. citizen. Like you have the ability to go and file this paperwork. And I think misinformed fear keeps us in the shadows of this in, these injustices that happen. Yep. We like to complain all day long on social media about how this police, jerk of a police officer did X, Y, Z, and we tell our mom and our aunt and our cousins and our brothers and everybody else is going to hear us our story, mm-hmm. but what we don't do is go in and make that complaint. And that's where it really matters, um, in my opinion. Um, so I always encourage that. So I said, me and my friend would go out to schools and, and teach these kids, because I'm sorry, kids, especially like teenagers, they don't have the right senses. Like we'd go over little scenarios with them. We're like, okay, if you're not doing anything and you're walking down the street and a police officer comes up and says, hey, come over here. What do, what do you do? Run. I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I laugh because I did that. <laughs> but that's their, they don't have the sense. They don't have the, so we can make excuses for young kids because they just don't have the sense, right? But at the same time, when we're seeing these different things on TV where yeah, where it's like exactly. 20, 20 something year olds getting tackled and they shouldn't have run, and maybe maybe that's why the police officer shouldn't have shot him in his back. He shouldn't have been running, right? They also, you don't know one, how they were raised. Um, you don't know what they've already encountered. There's all sorts of facts that, that go into this. And then people's natural, unfortunately, inhibition is to run. Um, and when you come from a certain area, I ain't doing anything wrong. Why can't I run? Legally, if you're not doing anything wrong and he didn't have a reason to stop you, you can, you can run. But you should not. And to your <laughs> point earlier, like if, if it goes back to these officers patrolling these areas Mm -hmm. if you i think killer mike was one of the one of the big ones that first came out and said that you know his family members they would police the neighborhoods that they grew up in and they're policing the people that look like them yeah and so therefore there was more of a inclined to like cooperate there was a community interaction between officers and and families and and, and individuals that live in those neighborhoods and i think the police do need to get out more into the neighborhoods and just Mm -hmm. You know, let's say, for example, you're a police officer, you're driving down the street, you see some kids at the park playing basketball, wave at them. Mm-hmm. Play with them. Yeah, you don't have to play. I hate seeing the cops. <laughs> you don't like cops no, playing basketball no, with them. Because like, you know, you know, I think, I don't know. I'm not personal opinion on that's a whole different story. But, like, you know, you, why aren't you rolling? Have your windows down. When you're rolling down the street, Say hello to people. The, this is your community. 
they should be part of the community. I, I, I posted on my uh, Facebook the other day, I said, my door, this door, my office is open every day to police officers. Y'all wanna come in and say hello, y'all need to use my bathroom, get some coffee, they're welcome here. Every single police officer is welcome to walk right in my door and I'll wave, when they cut past by my office, I wave at them. Um, they should walk into stores, hey, how are y'all doing? Walk in and just say hello. Hey, just coming in to say hello, see how you're doing today. Wave at people out in their yards, be more interact. I mean, uh, all it takes is just a little bit, just a little bit to do a quick wave or a nod. It doesn't always have to be so serious. And so I do think the police need to get out into these areas and also know the type of individuals that are in these communities because if you're coming from, and I don't know who your listeners are, but if you're coming from North Dallas and then you're, you know, you grew up raised and born in, you know, uh, Preston Hollow or Highland Park and then you start working the beat in South Dallas, you are going to be mind blown because you, you don't know anything about the community or the people. And so they need to know who these people are, these people, who the, who the people that you're supposed to be protecting, because they're supposed to be protecting them. Can, can I ask you something that you may or push back on? I love that. <laughs> I love that. She, she's good at that. <laughs> so, okay, so what responsibility lands on the parents to, to, because growing up, a lot of the things that I was told was like, don't act up or the police is going to come mm-hmm. and take you. And I think, and I don't know if it's just like a Latino thing, but it was always ingrained in us. Like, don't act up for the police. Like, they were seen as bad guys. And, and to me, I think if you've turned around that conversation to say, if you need help, call an officer or, or things like it, it starts at home. You yeah. Know? Well, I do agree. I hate, I hate, and I've seen it so many times where uh, parents, so it's usually you see the moms with the kids, um, telling their kids that the cops are bad or, oh, don't do that. Don't act up. That, that mean old cop is going to come get you. Right. What? Like they're well, the kukui. What? Yeah, like the, the police are the kukui. They're the bad guys. I think that that needs to change 100%. But also, I mean, you also have to think about situations. And I think that when I was a prosecutor, I think that a lot of other prosecutors didn't see the way I saw because I grew up in a bad neighborhood. You know, when you have these parents... Let's say you have a child that's born, and this child is born to a teenage mother who maybe got pregnant because she was on crack and prostituting, and the child is born hooked to drugs, right? Uh, Maybe in and out of uh, CPS, gets beat, dad's in prison, uh, mom doesn't really care about the schooling. I mean, you have these kids growing up in these really bad situations. What kind of child do you think that they're going to grow up to be when they're of the age to be parents and then they it's like the cycle of you have a bad parent that raises this child they're basically like raised by wolves i'm gonna tell you there are some kids people out there they're like raised by wolves like when you hear some of the testimony the mitigating evidence during punishment at some of these trials you know this man is up there on the stand trying to save his life you know and he gets up there and he testifies and he's like yeah 
I didn't really know my dad or when he was around, he used to beat me and my big brother, my big cousin molested me and my mom was on drugs. She always had men in and out of the house. So here's this man who's now 34 years old facing the death penalty or facing life in prison, trying to get some sympathy. And you think to yourself like, man, this man never had a chance. He never had a chance. So when you have people that are being raised like that, um, I didn't expect they're gonna act. Nobody ever taught them right from wrong, what they were taught was that wrong is right. They're taught, they use their kids to steal. I mean, they use them to do all sorts of really horrible things. These kids grow up, and then it's this cycle. And it's really, I mean, what, then that goes the whole social thing, like, well, what, do you, what, what do we do about that? And it, it translates. Um, it has a dominant effect, obviously. I think we both come from uh, mostly... Latino communities, and we, we've seen or experienced, uh, whether it was friends or, or family members, and, and, it, and that stress carries with us in school, and now the teacher has to go through it with us, mm-hmm. counseling, um, and a lot of the things also that would help, right, would be the things that they do in schools, right, is, is if you're already having a kid that you're identifying with, that you can tell is troubled. And I get it, the teachers already have so much to deal with. And much like officers are underpaid, at what point, like, it, it, it's just that continuing cycle, right? Because you kind of like, all we wanna do is get them out. Just mm-hmm. get them out of my classroom. Yeah, and Send also you have to think about the quality of teachers that they have in South Dallas neighborhoods versus North Dallas neighborhoods. We've seen it. I've seen it. I went, so I grew up, before I lived, I don't, again, I don't know who your listeners are, but Everybody. I grew up in, <laughs> I grew up in Pleasant Grove, but before that, I grew up in South Oak Cliff, and I recall going to school in South Oak Cliff, and I mean, it was this raggedy little school um, that we went to, and then my mom got us into this program, where we were shipped up north to Preston Hollow. I went to elementary school with George Bush's daughters, right? Mm-hmm. The twins. Jenna and... Yeah, and I'm going to tell you how fabulous this school was and all the teachers. This is all DISD schools. Why is it that the kids in South Dallas have horrible, horrible schools? I mean, they lacked the proper books and the proper building and facilities and crappy teachers. I mean, there's some good ones. But they got the bottom at the barrel. But then you go up right up the street to North Dallas, all still Dallas. And, man, it was like, it was fabulous. I remember one time they had us, like, eating, like, sushi at lunch with chopsticks. I mean, what? <laughs> we didn't have that. <laughs> right, right. So when you, I mean. You already have these kids that are growing up in really bad home situations, and then they go to a school that's just as crappy as their house with maybe a teacher that doesn't care. There's a lot of problems, and they need to pay them teachers more. Uh, Let me throw that out there. No, yeah, for <laughs> sure. I, um, so I've seen that from the sense of like the difference between tag and community. Mm-hmm. So I going to Alex W. Spence. I. I experienced that firsthand because if you grew up in that neighborhood, you were considered a community, but yet mm-hmm. the tag kids were bussed in and taught on a different side of the building mm-hmm. that was just like remade. Yeah. So even you can tell the differences in just the cosmetic feel of the building because you, 
you'd go in it, on our side of the building it was like there were no doors on the bathrooms <laughs> taggings on the on the bathroom walls but yet you go over to the tag side of the of the building and it's like air fresheners everywhere like welcome it's like it's harmonious feel and yet i have to go back to yeah. my to my community side of the building and it's like metal detectors yeah it's pretty it's pretty sad i mean that this there's multiple problems i mean when you i mean you just drive up the street to, to i mean here in east dallas i mean or pleasant grove i mean you just when you come from an ugly home in an ugly neighborhood where are you really going to get it? You don't, you don't know how the other side lives. It's only on TV. You've never seen pretty gardens and yards. And you just, you don't know that it's attainable to get out of this little bubble that you're in. It's, and I, I got out of the bubble, obviously. Um, but it was hard. Mm -hmm. It was hard. It was, uh, I'm sure that the kids in North Dallas didn't have to struggle as hard as I did to try to make it. Um, and so I think that a lot of these kids, they don't believe that it's attainable. They've never seen it. They've never encountered it. Um, so anyways, it, uh, there's multiple problems here, but, um, I think then, then that just leads to these young men mostly and young ladies being thrown into the criminal justice system. And then now here they are, we didn't give a crap about them before we didn't care about their education or how they were treated or them in and out of cps custody oh we care now when he killed somebody right um and his life is on the line we'll spend forty thousand dollars a year to keep him in prison but we ain't going to spend forty thousand dollars on his education but we'll we'll put him in prison and pay that money yeah. and and watching the netflix special on um the prison system mm -hmm. and what it's the, the business that it is mm -hmm. That woke me up to, I was like, wow. So we have more prisons built than we do community centers or outreach centers. And why? Because it's, it's the game. And, and that, that to me was like, you're kidding. Watching that documentary, and if you do get a chance to go out there, do I go, go out there and, and, listen, and watch this, it's on Netflix. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but... Just type in prison system. <laughs> I'm sure it'll come up. Van Jones is on it. Um, there's a tremendous amount of analysts that are on there that are from political to actually law enforcement that are on there. And they talk about the, the genesis of what that business and how it started. And it, you know, it travels all the way back towards like the, the I guess, after the Civil War and how, you know, after uh, Reconstruction happened and where after the slaves were freed and, and, and it goes all the way back to that. So basically the way the South was built is how they describe it is was on free labor. And how did they do that? By incarcer incarcerating a lot of these ex-slaves and mm -hmm. um, throwing them in for things like bootlegging or just false accusations and um, even drugs. Um, but anyway, if you ever get a chance to watch that, it, it's a phenomenal like yeah. documentary. Those it. documentaries make me so upset. <laughs> well then okay then maybe you shouldn't watch it <laughs> everybody else can everybody else can. yeah i mean it, it is a huge money-making industry and i think that it all started to try to keep a certain class of people down mm -hmm. there's more people in prison than we ever even had slaves mm -hmm. so yeah you you let them out of slavery you didn't give them any chances and then you put them in prison 
And then now you have households where the, the man is not there. What is it? What is statistically every one in four men born today is going to end up spending their life in prison? Right. A black man. That is crazy, crazy. So we just, we changed from one form of slavery to another. And then you put them in prison. It's a money-making scheme for the government, the states. Um, and then basically they're free labor. I know that in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk about, and I think there's maybe some lawsuits going on in terms of using prisoners for free labor. Like, y'all gotta pay them something. And if you pay them something, you ought to pay them something right. Because it, it's not, to me, it's not fair that let's say this one corporation can go, like if they had, if they hired me to do a job, they have to pay me at least minimum wage. But what they're doing is they're going into these prisons and only paying them 30 or 40 cents an hour. No, what? yeah, they ain't paying them nothing. And then they're not even giving them the proper training to do so. I know that in California, there was a computer maker that was having these prisoners like I think break down or do something with the computers and they weren't given the proper equipment because you know there's stuff in the insides of computers that's harmful to people mm -hmm. um they weren't giving them the the right equipment so they were getting sick they, in el paso i think last week or two weeks ago there was a big upset about using the um the people that are in the jail and prison in el paso to move these dead bodies due to covid um, without proper training and, you know, and, and I'm sure these, these guys probably signed up for it. They're probably getting trustee status three for one. But if you are putting your life on the line, just so you can get out of jail a little quicker, there's something wrong with that. Um, and so I think that, I mean, there's a lot of problems. And I hear in the last week that Texas is we're closing down four units um, but not because there's less prisoners. I was, that's what I thought when I saw the headline, I was like, whoa, we're closing down some prisons. We're not just building them. No, it's because they have a shortage of staff. So they're just going to stick everybody Into all together because this is COVID and we all want to get a little closer. Apparently if you're in prison, they're shutting four prisons down. And what's that going to do? Cause they have low staff. Same amount of prisoners, if not more, and sticking them into even closer quarters. Wow. Welcome to America, y'all. Oh <laughs> y'all don't be getting me upset. It's no. Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. This this would be a different conversation, but I'd love to uh, get your thoughts on um, the mental health of it. But it doesn't have to go into today, But I would because I know that could be its own segment on its it own is. because of what especially it's something that goes into play mm -hmm. when it comes to you know criminal justice reform and and where you know how we treat these certain individuals yep. um but yeah we can definitely table that for for a next conversation because i'd really want to get you to dive into that without getting you too upset <laughs> <laughs> so okay so let's lighten up the mood a little bit um more on on what you're thinking the I guess the effects of marijuana being <laughs> passed here in Texas or overall, overall throughout the country. Yeah. If Texas wants to make some money, <laughs> I mean, come on, let's make for some prisoners to work for that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you, would you see them? Being I don't think good? it's going to happen anytime soon. I think Texas is still a very red conservative state. Um, and I think it's going to be a long time. I, I still think that it's a, it's way down the road. I really do think it's, it's, and I hope not. I would think that it'd be, you know, 
the next year or two become legal. Um, but I don't really see it. I haven't, I mean, I've seen some of the bills and this and that. They're just really dragging their feet on it. I think that Texas and America has the opportunity to create an industry, um, an agricultural industry, and grow marijuana and sell it properly. Um, and I think that Americans can really profit from that. And it'll also, I think it will do wonders for the criminal justice system and for the people that um, are involved in the drug trade. Because once you take that piece away from them, that just means hopefully less drug dealers. Um, you have marijuana, because a lot of times what you're seeing is this marijuana is, um, has other stuff in it. Um, they're putting other drugs in the marijuana, because obviously it's coming from the drug dealers, um, that's harmful to them, or that it's going to get them hooked on to another type of drug. And then as a, as a young person, if you find yourself um, communicating and being around drug dealers, like your drug dealer for your marijuana, then you're more inclined to get involved in stuff that you normally shouldn't. So if instead of me going to some shady person on the corner that might give me some bad drugs, I go to a pharmacy or some other legitimate place and get something that's not going to harm me and not make me addicted to another type of drug. I mean, I think that it's going to have a lot of really positive effects on, um, on the country as a whole. But I think that as a country as a whole, I, we're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things also, like, even as if it, because I've seen, you know, athletes you know mm -hmm. kind of push it and uh, you know justifiably so because they're they say it works better for if for their i guess their their recovery mm -hmm. um their nerves uh, and some of these guys are actually dealing with some real issues outside of the playing field uh, or basketball court it has a lot of uh, medicinal value to it it mm -hmm. really really does and i think that we're really um losing out by not um using things like using marijuana for people to have cancer, depression, mm -hmm. all sorts of things. Um, so we're, we're losing, um, but when, because I think it's going to happen, when it does become legal, I think that it's going to be a very prosperous industry and something that's going to be well-regulated, um, and hopefully there will be less crime because of it. And so I think that overall the impact will be good. But keep in mind, even though some of these states have um, legalized marijuana, the feds, it's still illegal. In the federal government, the federal system, it is still 100% illegal. They just choose not to go after certain people. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm looking forward to that day because I think that it's going to be a good day for America if they can properly put it in place. No, for sure. I, I agree with that. Um, I would ask you this. If you were sitting here in this mm -hmm. room with your 15-year-old self, mm -hmm. What advice do you tell her? Lord, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was really bad fifteen year old, um, <laughs> but that bad fifteen year old turned into a good yeah, me. Yeah, so, so yeah. So I would, I would maybe tell myself, Angel, it's gonna get better. It's gonna get better. It's gonna get better. <laughs> it's gonna get better. So um, I wouldn't necessarily advise myself to do anything different necessarily. Maybe like. Don't screw up in school so much. But then I wouldn't, maybe, what would I be doing? Like, maybe I'd be doing something different. So I like what I do. 
Um, and I think that my background and my upbringing made me who I am. And so I think that if I feel like that if I change something, then who knows what I'd be yeah. doing. Probably something boring. <laughs> <laughs> not, not living the uh, SVU <laughs> Law and Order episodes every day. Every day. My job is fun. I like it. <laughs> See, that's the thing. And, and that's why I thought you'd be such a great interview because your energy for this type of uh, like just this career that mm-hmm. you've like molded for yourself and in this in this industry one thing is not to you know forget is not only like are you latina you know but you're in it and you have a lot of um what i would say people that watch you right mm-hmm. so even then like the girls that are there because there's people that are coming you know so mm-hmm. they, they, they look at even they're aspiring to be in the criminal justice system, right? Like not in the system, but in the career field. Let's <laughs> yeah. stay away from the system, but go into the field. So um, what advice would you kind of give them if, if this is something that they're like, this is an interest? Yeah, I would encourage them. I mean, I think it's very, it's fun. It's interesting. Um, I love my job. Um, and so I just say, keep it up. Don't let anybody hold you back. Um, Cause I think that a lot of that, you know, a lot of families like, oh, you have to drop out of school so you can watch your little brother, this and that. Just keep on trying. I know it's hard. I'm gonna tell you, it is hard. It is hard, especially if you're coming from certain areas and walks of life, it is hard, but keep going, keep going. Because I could have stopped at any point because I didn't have food in my table, money in my pocket, but I suffered through it. And here I am. And not only that, I think I think even then the the relationships that you were able to forge mm-hmm. throughout your your upcoming in, into the into the career, you know that you that you just like managed to like I've seen it from just in afar, like the last couple of years that I'm like, yo, this girl is like doing it, she's in it, and even then, like you you know you you think about the daily impact that you have on people's mm-hmm. lives. And I think even because of the community and the upbringing that you had, you're able to kind of identify and fight for these people more aggressively because you can identify with not only the fact that, hey, I come from the same environment that you did and I'm here to help you. Yeah. Um, so for that, that for me has always been something that I just, you know, I hold you in that light that I'm like, this is a real crime fighter. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You know, and, and not not only that, like I think um, as you progress into the future, you know, and God, you know, I, I everybody wishes that 2020 would just play, you know, fast forward and get <laughs> yes. out, you know. Um, but Ruth Gainer Ginsburg, mm-hmm. what did that kind of how, kind of an impact had on you yeah. when she passed? I mean, it was very sad. I mean, obviously, it happens to everybody. Um, I think that the new justice, you know, left and right, everybody's arguing about mm-hmm. this and that. I've not heard anything really horrible about her. I'll be honest with you. Um, yeah, she's a Republican. But, I mean, she's also, um, she's religious, which sometimes can be good. Just because you're religious doesn't mean that you're going to instill that upon other people. Um, uh, some of the lawyers here in Texas um, were her students. Mm-hmm. Um, because she's obviously, she's a, a law school professor and they had really great things to say about her. And so I don't think there's anything really negative. So I think that, um, you know, with, with, uh, Ruth Gator Ginsburg's passing, hopefully, um, you know, it's a new light. 
Um, I'm going to try to remain positive and hope that, just hope for the best going forward because there's really nothing else I can do but, but hope and pray that uh, the justices do the right thing um, on these cases going forward. Right. And then even segueing into that, um, any political aspirations for you? Five years. Five years ago. Five years. I'm a rough judge. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, look, look at like, the new administration that Biden's putting in. Like, yeah. It's like women. And a lot more women have been active in the last couple years. I agree. Um, it is. I like to see different, especially Latinas, out there um, doing things. It's very encouraging. And I think to myself, well, dang, I could have done that. Yeah. And I can. I'm going to tell you right now. If I wanted to run for senator, I, wanted, I will do it. Uh, but right now, I'm focusing on doing what I like best. And people ask me all the time if I'm running for judge, that I should. They beg me. I'm not going to do it right now. In about five years, I will. I'll do that and then see what happens after that. That's awesome. It'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, it will be fun. Look at you. Um, and, okay, so just kind of in wrapping up, um, I think 2021, mm -hmm. right? What's coming up for you? Like, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm, I'm 2021, I'm just, I'm really just hoping things are going to go back to normal. Um, well, I think we all hope for that. Um, I'm continuing to just truck along here and do what I do, keep fighting for my clients, rolling with the punches. Um, but ultimately, I want to see things go back to normal. And I think that, um, I think it will. I, we just all have to work together. Oh, it can happen. That's awesome. Well, for sure, thank you for the time tonight. Absolutely. As we well tonight today because <laughs> it's getting darker a little bit earlier. Um, please plug in your website where people can contact you if you have any questions. Uh, as you heard, her door's open if you need coffee. <laughs> Way better. <laughs> it's true. It's true. One of my constable friends drove by on Friday. I seen him pass by. I said you didn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> and she knows when you pass by because uh, she has cameras. I saw him. <laughs> and it's, so no, uh, obviously I'm here in Dallas, um, Angel Mata, so www.angelmatalaw.com. Nice, nice. Well, thank you again for the time. You're so gracious. We will have to get back into a second conversation Definitely. on mental health. That would be so, because <laughs> I, I want you to share like your experiences with that and how you kind of, uh, I would say, experienced some of those, uh, some of those trials there with, with having to deal with that. We all hope for the best in 2021 for sure. And um, thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. The American Experience with Ernesto Palomino.